Good morning, uh, this is Mike, and you are listening to Driving Theology. Theology, theology. Uh, I've got a bit of a cold, so if you hear some sniffling, uh, my apologies to you. <laughs> uh, I am, as usual, on my way. This is going to be another morning edition. On my way to work. I uh, have come down with a pretty bad cold. Uh, I'm on the, I think I'm over the hump. Getting better though, so this is my third day back to work since the the cold. I, I didn't miss any work; it happened on the weekend, which was sort of nice and sort of not nice. But they laid me out for a few days. And if you, any of you guys who have allergies or, or have recently had colds, you know it's kind of harder in the morning. I think that the rest of the day, often you kind of have to almost defrost. <laughs> Frost your voice and uh, you know get all the gunk out of the system. But anyway, we'll we'll do her anyway. And if it doesn't turn out well, then whatever. It's all good. It's not like we are uh, under the uh, thumb of any quality control people here. Obviously, uh, you hear a lot of background noise. That's because I'm in my car. And I don't do any editing. I keep everything just as, as raw and real as possible. I don't have any notes in front of me. And I, I often don't even plan on what I'm going to talk about. It's kind of usually a catching up on the, on the week and um, things that I've read or listened to. Um, sometimes movie reviews. Sometimes I bring a friend or two along. Anyway, yeah, that's where we are. Uh, wow, what's been going on lately? Um, been reading a book by Brian McLaren. The first work of his I've read. I think I've heard him speak on, on things. I know of Brian McLaren, but I think this is going to be maybe the first thing that I've read of his. Uh, called... <clears throat> The, the great migrate the great spiritual migration uh, of course McLaren is a voice uh, who is associated with the emergent church the emerging church the church emergent um, and he's man he's pretty far out there he uh, interesting guy he has been a pastor, church planter, uh, and he he's 
stopped that, I think, I don't think he's a pastor any, any longer, uh, to write books uh, on uh, what I would call church reformation uh, or something like that. And what this book, book does uh, so far, he's, he's just identifying the movement that's out there in the church worldwide. And there does seem to be uh, Christians on the move. And they seem to be moving from uh, institutionalized churches uh, to lesser institutionalized churches or, or non-institutional churches. Or church, if you will. And I use the word church as commonly defined. I, I don't like to use it that way personally, but I know that's what people uh, understand because, you know, my my belief is that there's only one church, and so everybody's a member of that one body, and there are different different parts of that body, but there's only one body, there's only one church, and that's how I like to how I like to define it and look at it, but you know, that's neither here nor there, that's just a, a term, but most people use churches uh, to mean either separate congregations or uh, separate denominations or movements. Um, and I suppose in the New Testament they are used in a plural way. The problem I have with using it plural today uh, is that there's so much division. Today it is used as a division between basically religions. Some people would say that Catholicism is a religion and Baptists have a different religion, you know. Uh, and so it's used to divide the body. So when we use churches plural, we divide Anyway, that's a tangent. So, back to McLaren. Uh, yeah, he's he's pretty radical in his thinking. Um, he he, I would say, is similar to some of the other voices I have been reading. Uh, some of the some of the people I've read the most are, uh, I would say, in order of frequency. Let's say uh, Frank Viola, N.T. Wright, um, and then maybe Wayne Jacobson, uh, Mike Breen. I've read several books of his. Not to mention uh, the Dead Guys, uh, Watchman Nee, and uh, A.W. Tozer. These guys. Um, but I'd say he's probably farthest in many ways from uh, N.T. Wright and in some ways he's very close I'd say uh, actually he's, he's got some distance between all those guys I read he's a little bit different because I think I think and I'm not sure about this but I think what he espouses is a move from the current institution into a better institution. 
that seems to be the direction that he bends. Now, I'm very early into this book, and it's not even his most recent book. And again, I'm not I'm not an expert on McLaren's work, so I could not tell you. Um, I could not tell you exactly what that looks like, but. Uh, I will say uh, that I've already had to defend him a little bit. Uh, I actually, perhaps foolishly, defended him to a person who's probably read more of his works than I have. Uh, and we'll see how that plays out. It was a Facebook conversation that was really great, actually. But I quoted him, uh, and I'm not going to be able to get the quote exactly right, but... Basically, it's, it's the thesis of his book, and that is he sees a, a spiritual migration happening in the world uh, where people are forcing to give up many of their firmly held beliefs uh, and instead replace them with a radical compassion, a radical love, that love... Uh, for so many years has been uh, subjugated to beliefs, to a system of beliefs that Christians were for many years defined by their beliefs. Uh, whereas the Bible clearly tells us that we are supposed to be defined by our love, by our compassion and our love for one another. So yeah, Mike, Mike, uh, no, sorry, not Mike, uh, Brian, uh, McLaren is, is pointing this out in this book and I suppose he's going to work that out as we go. Um, now, if you know me, you know that I'm currently not in any institutional church. We have a... The only institutionally that lies things I do right now with with uh, uh, with my faith or we, we have people over every Wednesday and it's you know, we've been reading through the Gospels, and everything else that happens just kind of happens. We share a meal, we eat, uh, and when appropriate, we've been we've been uh, making our way through the Gospels, which we finished just a couple weeks ago. Hallelujah! Uh, which was a a great great thing to to have done. So it took us two years and two months uh, to get from. Mark chapter 1 through Matthew through Luke and all the way to John chapter 21 I believe so yeah it was a it was a good journey a very very important one for me I think and I hope for everyone uh, and our our goal our stated goal was that we could get to know Jesus better by by what went on with him while he was on the earth. Uh, and my personal belief is that Jesus is who God is. So to know Jesus is to know God. Uh, and And I believe, like Paul, that nothing else compares to the joy of knowing 
that is, you know, that is the holy grail. <laughs> that is the holy grail of faith for me. Uh, and, and, and I'm trying to make it so. Uh, maybe I'm not there yet, but knowing Jesus to me is the key uh, to everything. He unlocks the mysteries of the universe. He unlocks the mysteries of scripture. Uh, he is uh, he is the fulfillment of the purposes of God in the universe. And so to know him, not just to know him historically, but to know who he is and what he's doing today, uh, to me is the, is the greatest thing uh, that we could pursue. Uh, and I think those who are in a relationship with Jesus, those who are knowing him better and better, are being transformed by him uh, into true humans, into the true humans, the new creation. Uh, we are being perhaps cell by cell or block by block or thought by thought rebuilt. And of course, there's a tearing down process in all of that. There, there are aspects of our life that need to be deconstructed, many. And I've been on that journey uh, for the last probably 10 years, allowing myself to be deconstructed so that uh, I could be reconstructed uh, into, hopefully, human that better represents true humanity. Yeah, and so I think we're all on the journey. So, back to Brian McLaren. Man, I'm off on all kinds of tangents today. Uh, yeah, somebody, somebody said, well, you know, Brian McLaren, he, he, he he's quick to uh, destroy people's uh, cherished beliefs but only offers kind of a flimsy idea of love. And I just didn't buy that. I, I, I think that's a cop-out. Um, uh, because in the, in the quote uh, that I had posted, uh, the very last part was basically, uh, this is not exact, but he said, you know, we need to have a radical compassion as embodied in Jesus. In other words, we need to model the compassion that Jesus embodies as opposed to, and be defined by that, as opposed to being defined by our different beliefs, you know, beliefs on baptism or the sacrament, uh, the other sacrament, or, uh, you know, beliefs on Ecclesiology, uh, epistemology, or whatever, whatever have you, uh, especially eschatology, right? Your your uh, your thoughts on what happens in the end, right? Which defines uh, people's theology today. That eschatology you have really defines your theology. So it's important, McLaren says. Uh, that we love each other, that we love people, that, that that be the way that we are defined, 
that people know us by that uh, because that is how Jesus was known. Jesus never lays down any uh, intricate theology. He doesn't. He doesn't sit his, his apostles down, as far as we know, have them take out their handy dandy notebooks uh, and start, uh, you know, uh, defining his terms to them, his vocabulary, uh, what he thinks about this and that. Uh, no, he just lives his life. He lives a life of compassion. Uh, he speaks to them in parables uh, so that they can understand. Uh, and he, he leads them from where they are in their hearts to where he is in his heart, slowly over three years. Uh, and actually the work is not done there. The work is finished and completed, I believe, uh, by the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of their lives, as it is with all of us. Um, but love, real agape love, is not a flimsy idea. And it is not flimsily embodied in Jesus. Uh, to, to, to accuse McLaren of only, you know, offering a, a flimsy kind of feeling of love, you know, I, I, I think is, it's ridiculous. So, anyway, so I, I got into a bit of a, a tussle with, with a guy who I know, uh, and I think we're good now. Wasn't personal or anything like that, but the problem with McLaren is that so many people, especially those who are in institutional churches, know him as a kind of an antichrist figure, or at least an anti-church figure. Uh, they have a lot of fear of him because young people have listened to him. Uh, he has he has uh, he is convinced a lot of people of his ways. He's not hes not a, a person to be trifled with in that, in that manner. And so people are threatened. Uh, people are threatened by him. A um, number of people in the pews is th are threatened, you know, is threatened by him. And I, th I think especially young people are drawn into that kind of a message. Uh, but emergent church is not something new. You know, this has been going on for the past 20 years, I'd say, strong. And I, I think some of the ideals in emergent theology are very nice, but the way they've played out, because they've just been reinstitutionalized, is causing them now to head to get to the point where, uh, you know, the mega churches of the 80s and the 90s were and got to and kind of crashed. So I think they're kind of going down a, another road. They they simply, uh, you know, they replaced some of, of the insides but kept the same same structure in the same package and and it's not working. Right? Uh, Jesus is not best delivered by professionals. He's best delivered by a friend. He's best delivered through a relationship. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how else to say that. <clears throat> That's what I believe. And so, you know, 
when you institutionalize Jesus and you package him and, and uh, you know, present him and garnish him uh, with all the trappings of, of institution, uh, yeah, he may, may seem delicious up front, but in the end, you've just, you've just covered up something incredibly beautiful that takes a while to uncover for people that they don't quite get the sim simple relationship that he means to have with people. Uh, I'm not saying Jesus is a piece of meat. <laughs> Don't take me wrong. Um, so yeah, uh, that's one thing that's been going on this week. Uh, reading through that book, I really haven't made much headway. Um, but yeah, I'll uh, be reading that for the next foreseeable future. <laughs> My wife, uh, my wife, Tomoko had a uh, flower arranging exhibition this last week. Um, some of you know she lost her brother recently, uh, who, who died suddenly, and it was quite a shock to everybody. We, we were very lived close to him, and she was very close to him. Her only, her only sibling. Her mother's already passed on, so it's just her and her father now and that uh, father's living with us but uh, anyway that that happened back in October and so this is February well it was February so she she's been doing this flower arranging for many years and it's a if you know Japanese flower arranging it's called Ikebana she's in the more radical dare I say um, rebellious part of Ikebana called Sogetsu and uh, it is uh, I think they said this is the 90th year of this particular school of, of art uh, in Japanese flower arranging anyway she's been doing this for many years and uh, this year she was asked to do a, a solo piece usually she works with a group uh, on you know the teachers uh, teacher has a an image that she wants to do, and so that usually the pupils all work together to to uh, help the teacher uh, realize her vision. Uh, but this year, she was Tomoko was allowed to have her own vision for her piece, and so she wanted to make it a tribute to her brother. And so that's been going on for the for the last uh, you know month or two, getting ready for that and, and planning that and drawing, you know, making sketches and things like that. And, so for the last three days, from Sunday uh, through uh, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, her flower arranging, her arrangement was on display. Uh, so that's been a bit of a emotional uh, time for her. Uh, and, uh, you know, even without the flower part, she's been quite busy with that. So that's something we were able to do this last weekend. And, and very thankful and grateful to all the people who came out to see that and support her in that. Uh, I think it turned out very beautiful. Probably the best work she's done so far. Uh, and certainly the most heartfelt. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, it's amazing how art 
says what words can't. But simple words usually can't can't portray. They can't portray the right emotion. Art really does a good job. And uh, that and that we can transfer something so painful, such as the, the loss of a loved one, into a beautiful work of art, uh, I think is a wonderful healing process. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it does. You know, I've, I've written a, a song or two since uh, the passing of her brother that comes from you know, my own, my own place of, of pain through that, which is, pales in comparison to what my wife has been going through. Um, but there's a definite healing that goes there, that goes on there through that. Um, excuse me. <coughs> now, from from the tradition that I grew up in, we really have not allowed artists to partake in the church and what it does. It's kind of amazing, actually. If I were to look at, you know, how an artist might be able to be a part of the tradition I grew up in, I think best example would be VBS, <laughs> Creating Materials, um, which as you know, if you're an artist and you're asked to create VBS materials, it's not really an outlet for the emotion that you have inside of you. Um, you know, you may uh, enjoy the appreciation you get from doing a good job, but it's not really, you know, it's not really uh, what you're meant to do. not a legitimate outlet uh, of self-expression um, and so I, I you know I think churches especially those who are on the more conservative or, or fundamental end uh, of the spectrum uh, I think really need to begin to contemplate beauty and allow the people in their congregation who have this trying to burst from their heart uh, to have a venue for that. Artists don't make art because they're good at it. Artists make art because that's the only one, only way they feel like they can really express what's inside of them. And everybody wants to be understood. I think, I think we have a have a natural, a good desire to be understood. Now, if that is coupled with a healthy desire to understand others, then wow, that's a you know that that's the best place you could possibly be. Oh, I love that Land Cruiser. Ah, sorry. You're seeing the uh, the uh, materialistic side of me for a minute. There's a beautiful older well-maintained Land Cruiser. Uh, I like 4x4s. Four four. Anyway, 
having the capacity, therefore, to express yourself with the people whom you love the most is such a joy for artists. It's such a joy. And if they are given the, the, the freedom uh, and a safe place for that expression, uh, I think it makes you whole as as whole, wholer, <laughs> more whole uh, as as the body of Christ wherever you're meeting. Um, whether that's uh, music, vi the visual arts, theater, dance, whatever that may be. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's great. I, I think, uh, not in the Trump way, I think it's great. <laughs> that was a horrible impersonation. I need to work on that. Anyway, uh, yeah, so. unrelated to McLaren perhaps um, but I hope you will you will identify uh, and and seek to help the artists in your communities release uh, their artistic potential and to be honest and open with you through that art um, because that's how they speak that's how an artist speaks uh, wow, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm kind of struggling here to find things that are going to be meaningful to you. I know there's more that happened, um, but I've had so many things happen this morning already, and I kind of woke up groggy, because uh, I got to sleep in later than usual, didn't have to take my daughter to school today, so I took the opportunity and slept in an extra hour and a half. So I'm probably still just uh, a little bit groggy. A little more sleep last night than I need to. So hey, I won't let you, uh, or won't make you struggle through this. Um, I'll go ahead and cut this off. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, hopefully, I, oh well, yeah, there is one more thing. I've got about five minutes. Uh, I will bring this up, uh, and this is in line with McLaren. Uh, people like uh, uh, Jerzak, I've heard me speak of Jerzak before, uh, as well as Jacobson, who one of their missions in life is to unwrath God, is to uh, correct the notion that we, we serve an angry God. Uh, N.T. Wright is also uh, a part of that conversation. Um, because he, he, he really uh, takes to task the, uh, the position that um, Jesus was, was crucified on the cross because God's wrath had to go somewhere. He had to punish somebody. He had to have blood. And so Jesus steps in the gap, and he gets killed for us. And, and you know, that's a, that's a 
penal substitution is a very common uh, theological standpoint out there. Well, it makes God, of course, look like a pagan God. It puts God uh, in a position no better than any of the other bloodthirsty gods uh, that were served by the people surrounding the people of Israel and, and indeed the people of Israel themselves at times. Um, uh, and that's a problem. That, that does not gel with who we see Jesus being. And of course, if Jesus is the, is the, the image of the invisible God, then, then you know, we have a problem. We have a, you know, Jesus never shows himself to be bloodthirsty. Uh, so the unwrathing of God is something that's very important, uh, I think, to these, to these gentlemen. Uh, one thing that N.T. Wright uh, has been able to do because of his, uh, his uh, qualifications as a New Testament scholar and his uh, uh, translation abilities, he's been, been able to translate some uh, egregious uh, mistranslations. Uh, one in Romans, I believe it's three, uh, it talks about yeah, that very thing that, that, that uh, God's wrath was appeased basically on the cross. Uh, because that translation was so far off from the original Greek. Uh, I mean, so far off you wouldn't even believe it. The original Greek uh, says something like Jesus, Jesus became the mercy seat for us. The mercy seat, of course, is the uh, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where where God would sit and forgive the sins of Israel. So, in essence, what what the the passage the passage should say is that Jesus became the place where we are forgiven of our sins. He became that place. He became that position, or you know, but somehow because translators of the Bible tend to translate through their own preconceived notions of what the Bible should be saying, which obviously are wrong. Uh, they believe in, in a wrathful God, and they believe in the uh, idea of penal substitution. And so they just decided to, well, let's... Let's change that Jesus became the mercy seat to, to, to Jesus became the place where the, the wrath of God is, is uh, appeased, or however they wrote it. It's the, the New Living Translation, which is also a translation that I've read quite a bit in the last 15 plus years. It's more than 15, probably uh, 17 last years. It's probably been my main translation to read. Now I'm really rethinking that. I've been reading the ESV lately. I'd like to see what the ESV says in that place. But, yeah, uh, that's pretty bad. Um, and so if people have been using that one translation uh, to justify their, uh, their hold on the idea of penal substitution, then that's pretty flimsy. And I hope that's correct. And apparently, New Living Translation has already corrected that. Um, that really poor translation. Uh, and it's not in, in newer.
have to see if it's in the translation. I haven't checked it yet. Uh, wow. You know, very grateful for uh, the work the Spirit is doing through people like N.T. Wright to, to set those mistakes, uh, to set them right. <laughs> I got to get to work. Yeah, great talking to you guys. As always, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you later. <laughs>